Good morning and welcome to uh, the Hayek Auditorium of the Cato Institute. My name is Julian Sanchez. I am a senior fellow here and it is my uh, very great privilege to welcome you all to the 2018 uh, installment of our annual surveillance conference. Uh, we really began the conference in 2013 as a, as a one-off uh, focused on the NSA and uh, inspired by the enormous amount of information uh, coming out as a result of the Edward Snowden revelations. Uh, and the following year, uh, I decided that it made sense to have a dedicated uh, full-day conference on surveillance. Uh, so this is the fifth year. We're running it under that name. I recall uh, a year or two in, the excellent national security reporter the New York Times, Charlie Savage, asked, uh, well, do you think, you know, as the Snowden information sort of peters out and that story vanishes from the headlines, um, there'll still be enough to talk about every year in the domain of surveillance. And uh, I'm, uh, I wouldn't say happy to say, but uh, I, I can confidently say that it doesn't look like we're running into the, the problem of being short on subject matter for a conference anytime soon. Um, before I introduce our first panel, I do want to suggest, I know uh, a conference like this, people come in and out over the course of the day, but I'm very pleased that uh, following the conference, in addition to our reception, um, a docent from the Smithsonian American Art Museum uh, has agreed to come and give a special tour uh, for attendees of the ongoing uh, Trevor Paglin retrospective, Sights Unseen. Paglin is a uh, just astonishingly original artist who uh, explores the surveillance state in its many guises uh, and works to use art to make visible um, operations of the state that are normally cloaked in shadow. Um, it's a, a fantastic exhibition. If you haven't seen it, it is absolutely worth it. And um, uh, it's closing in a few weeks. So I think this is a good opportunity if, if you are interested in art at all. Um, but to the subject of our first panel, uh, as with so many other issues in 2018, it is hard to talk about surveillance without circling back ultimately to Donald Trump, uh, who has had a strikingly fraught relationship with his own intelligence community, uh, frequently uh, calling into question intelligence conclusions and more dramatically uh, alleging a kind of deep state uh, conspiracy against him, uh, attempts to abuse uh, surveillance authorities for political purposes in order to undermine his presidency. Um, and uh, so the question is, uh, is this the thing that civil libertarians have so long worried about that uh, these surveillance authorities that um, are intended to go after spies and terrorists could be turned inwards and misused as they were for so long in the 50s and 60s for political purposes? Um, or is there reason for civil libertarians to, uh, to doubt whether this is a genuine instance of that? I can't think of anyone better to lead a panel exploring those questions than uh, my colleague Patrick Eddington, who has been on uh, all sides of this. He has been an analyst at the CIA and uh, a whistleblower uh, at the CIA. And we are very privileged and pleased to have him here as a scholar at the Cato Institute uh, to introduce our speakers. I will turn it over to Patrick Eddington. Julian, thank you for that. Oh. <clears throat> Uh, introduction and comment, and I'll drop the check off in your office uh, after, after we're done here. Um, <clears throat> my thanks to all of you who are here with us uh, in the Hayek Auditorium and those of you who are viewing online. Um, I do want to just go over a couple of quick admin items here before we get the ball rolling. 
Make sure that you've got your cell phones at least on vibrate. Uh, and if you have an Apple Watch like I do and our other little devices hanging around, make sure that they're on silent as well. We will do some Q&A here uh, towards the end, uh, and I'll, I'll repeat this, but uh, just make sure that you wait to be called upon. Wait for the microphone so everybody can hear you, especially our panelists. And I will ask you to announce your name and affiliation, not that we're taking names, uh, but we do like to kind of get a sense of who's here and, and what their interests are. You know, Julian gave us a, a good intro. <laughs> I want to kind of amplify on that uh, just briefly. For over a year, President Trump has made extraordinary claims about the alleged political abuse of surveillance powers directed against him. Let me, let me uh, rephrase that. Allegedly directed against him and his campaign. Claims repeated by his allies inside and outside of government. Yet to date, as Julian observed, most civil liberties groups simply haven't embraced the president's claims. And so it leads me to ask the question, is this just Trump derangement syndrome? overriding their usual principal concern, or is the skepticism actually well-founded? Without question, there are ample documented historical examples of sitting presidents using federal law enforcement or intelligence agencies to target their political opponents. In the early 20th century, President Theodore Roosevelt used the Secret Service to conduct surveillance against House and Senate members that Roosevelt was accusing of corruption. His successor and relative, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, relied on the FBI to keep tabs on isolationist opponents such as Senators Gerald Nye, Republican of North Dakota, and Senator Burton Wheeler, Democrat of Montana, as well as the Anti-Interventionist America First Committee. Trump is not the first president to claim the federal bureaucracy was working against him, but his, his accusations are qualitatively different, and his tone is most definitely different. Earlier this year, then Attorney General Jeff Sessions agreed to Trump's request that the department's inspector general investigate Trump's allegations that the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, or FISA, was misused by the FBI to spy on one or more Trump campaign officials. I should note that that investigation is ongoing. Are specific Trump accusations largely groundless? How are we to know for certain? Whose claims are to be trusted or distrusted, and why? If the president truly believes the Department of Justice bureaucracy is, quote, out to get him, end quote, why would he agree to an investigation of his claims by an element of that very same bureaucracy? More broadly, is the whole idea of a so-called deep state even valid or useful? How is an outside observer supposed to tell the difference between a legitimate and possibly even vital investigation and a pretextual one motivated by political animus? Are there policy changes that might both reduce the risk of abuse and inspire greater public confidence in government and those who are running it? Our panel is going to help me address these issues and let me begin by just uh, briefly introducing them. To my immediate left is Professor Michael Glennon. Uh, he is Professor of International Law at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University. He spent time on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee uh, as counsel. He's been a fellow at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. Uh, and I could go on and on and on, but the one thing I absolutely want to mention about Michael is his book, Double Government, uh, which for me is not only essential reading, but I teach a course occasionally at Georgetown University on Congress and national security, and that book is a central textbook in my course, so I highly recommend it. On the end over here uh, is Kate Martin, who is a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress, and she's working on issues related to fundamental rights and national security. She was previously the director of the Center for National Security Studies here in Washington. 
She has written and litigated on uh, civil liberties and national security issues, and of course she's testified in front of Congress as well. Um, Susan Hennessy, sitting next to Kate on her right, is fellow in national security and governance studies at the Brookings Institution. She's the managing editor of the Lawfare blog. And if you're not reading that, you're kind of missing out, uh, which is devoted to the sober and serious consideration of hard national security choices. She focuses on national security issues surrounding cybersecurity, surveillance, federal terrorism prosecutions, and congressional oversight of the intelligence community. And finally, April Doss uh, is a partner at Saul Ewing, Arnstein, and Lair, where she chairs the firm's cybersecurity and privacy practice group. Prior to that, she served as senior minority counsel to the Russia investigation on the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence. And I should point out that both April and Susan are prior counsels at the National Security Agency. So they've been in the business. Uh, they know what it essentially looks like. They know what is and is not necessarily possible. So I just want to kick it off here with kind of a definitional question, essentially. Exactly how do we define the deep state? Now, let me give you the Cambridge Dictionary uh, definition here. This is from the online edition. Organizations such as military police or political groups that are said to work secretly in order to protect particular interests and to rule a country without being elected. There's a little sidebar note that the, that the Cambridge folks added. The idea that there is a deep state governing behind the scenes is dismissed by some as a conspiracy theory. Susan Hennessy, is there a deep state? So I, I suppose the, uh, you can sort of stack the deck based on how you want to define it in the first instance. So the term deep state, which is originally applied to uh, the Turkish government, I believe, actually refers to an extrajudicial body that is operating outside uh, you know, the, the constraints of the rule of law. It's actually carrying out extrajudicial killings. It, it really is a, uh, you know, an extreme sort of shadow government. Um, does that exist in the United States? No. Does anything close to that or, or roughly resembling that exist in the United States? No. Now, if instead you want to say uh, the deep state is some group of unelected officials that, uh, that operate in ways that are not fully transparent to the public, yes, there's a national security bureaucracy. There is a career civil service. I would describe that as the ordinary function of the US government that, uh, that exists in lots of different contexts. Of course, the challenge in the national security space is that a lot of it, by necessity, and some of it not by necessity, has to occur in secret. And so uh, it becomes difficult to maintain, or whenever there's sort of, uh, especially a president who's using these terms to call into legitimacy that work, work which I believe is done pursuant to the law, <coughs> oversight of all three branches of government, um, it, it becomes more difficult whenever you have a president who is saying, well, you know, this is a deep state, it's illegitimate, the ability to sort of overcome that and say, no, it is legitimate, and to, and to explain to the American people what's going on uh, you know, is especially challenging whenever you can't produce all that information publicly. April? Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, it's interesting because this idea of deep state, and if you think fundamentally about who would compose that deep state if, <coughs> to the extent it exists, right, you're talking about people who uh, make a career perhaps for some number of years, perhaps for some number of decades, working in federal government in whatever department or agency they're in. And those people actually can serve a very important function in maintaining a moral compass at times when political appointment 
leadership of those departments and agencies changes. So, um, so I think the, the very use of the term deep state is um, so such a loaded term and frequently seen in you know, sort of a pejorative sense that just that language can cloud the discussion about the important roles that come with continuity of having career civil servants who understand whatever work it's, it is that they're in. Now, to Susan's point, absolutely much harder in the national security community where the oversight roles necessarily um, involve dealing with information that can't be fully and completely shared with the public. So harder than in, say, assessing whether there's a deep state in, I don't know, the Environmental Protection Agency or some other more transparent agency of government. Kate? Uh, I agree that there is no deep state in the United States, and I think that there is an FBI, a CIA, an NSA. Now there's an Office of Director of National Intelligence, and there is a history with some of those agencies. ODNI is recent enough that there's less history with them of violating the law, um, violating civil liberties, but there's also a very strong and knowable record of those abuses having been brought to light, um, changes having been made. Uh, and um, I used to work in Eastern Europe right after the fall of the wall when one of the tasks that the reformers wanted to do was set up a legal structure to bring under control what was the deep state in those communist countries, the KGB and its associated um, secret police. Um, and what I used to say was that in the United States, we don't have a system where we can be sure that the intelligence agencies will not violate the law, but we do have a system where it is pretty likely that pretty soon those violations will come to light. And that's, I think, difference, one of the, <coughs> excuse me, key differences. And the other thing I would just say is that when you ask the question for the morning, how do we know that the use of the deep state, and Michael might disagree with me about this, but I think in general the use of the deep state terminology is not useful to illuminate what is actually happening, and instead it is used <coughs> at the moment by the President of the United States to um, further conspiracy theories. Michael? I don't disagree with Kate. First, let me thank uh, Pat and Julian for organizing this and inviting me to be here. I don't disagree with Kate. I, I don't use the term deep state. I don't like the term deep state. I think it's vague and carries with it uh, not only notions of a huge nefarious conspiracy, but uh, as Susan pointed out, an experience of the sort that uh, has occurred in Turkey that is totally foreign to the American experience. I've written instead about what I've referred to in this book that Pat talked about, uh, the, a, a phenomenon called double government. It's not my term, it's Walter Badgett's term taken from his classic work on the operation of the English Constitution written in the 1860s. It's a standard mainstream analysis in Britain to describe uh, how Britain moved um, smoothly without revolution from a monarchy to 
what Badgett refers to as a concealed republic with one set of public institutions and another set of concealed institutions that are engaged in the actual processes of government. Um, Through that process, Badgett pointed out, the British government became more democratic and more accountable. Applying that theory to the United States and the evolution of the United States government since the Truman administration, my thesis in the book is that the uh, United States also has developed a system of double government in which the public institutions, Congress, the presidency, and the courts have gradually, over the course of the last 70 years, transferred power to the national security bureaucracy. And the United States has moved from democratic accountability in the opposite direction towards autocracy. Now, I should say, I I should use the term double government in the past tense because it's essential to Badgett's theory that the two sets of institutions, public and private, remain on the same page, that they project an image of public harmony, that the public not distinguish between the two and, and continue to believe that the decisions and definition of national security policy is made by the public institutions. Once a rift occurs of the sort that has occurred in the United States, an epic development in American constitutional history, Badgett's prediction is the whole system of double government falls to earth, in his, in his phrase, falls to earth. It becomes destabilized and uh, policy oscillations make predictions uh, very difficult as to, as to uh, what national security policy will be in the future. That's the situation that the United States is in today. So the, in my view, the Badgett's, Badgett's, Badgett's theory was accurate in suggesting that once that rift occurs, both the national security bureaucracy and the so-called Madisonian institutions, Congress, the presidency, and the courts, are delegitimated. And we are now, as a consequence of that rift, headed into, it it seems to me, a a very dangerous territory. Well, what's interesting is how enduring this phrase and this concept of deep state is, right? In the 1990s, it was was typified by the X-Files on Fox. Confession, my favorite series of the 1990s. Um, But it's even more contemporary from a cultural standpoint, right? Avengers versus Hydra. You got any Marvel fans in here? Okay, a few. But the other thing that we see is, is the literary manifestation of this. And I hold in my hands uh, a couple of books here uh, that really kind of speak to this. Uh, the first is, uh, is by one of the president's most vocal uh, supporters, former congressman and former House Oversight and Government Reform Committee chairman Jason Chaffetz of Utah, who published this back in September, The Deep State, How an Army of Bureaucrats protected Barack Obama and is working to destroy the Trump agenda. And I want to just take one particular episode from here. This was very early on in the Trump administration that uh, the Mr. Chaffetz went over to talk to then Attorney General Jeff Sessions about a laundry list of, of complaints that Chaffetz had, including uh, congressional subpoenas from his committee being refused and, and so on and so forth. And not surprisingly, it was Brian Pagliano, who was uh, then Secretary of State Hillary Clinton's 
uh, private IT guy who ran her email server, he was the guy in the crosshairs of Mr. Chaffetz and some of his colleagues. He had refused uh, to comply with the subpoena. And so Chaffetz had gone over to the Department of Justice to basically bend uh, AG Sessions' ear about this whole thing and, and, and try to get it. And I just want to read a little bit of this. And this is Chaffetz. This is not me, to be clear. This is Chaffetz. This should not even have been a partisan issue. Even Democrats in the House Oversight Committee would agree that congressional subpoenas mean something. I wanted the Justice Department to prosecute Pagliano. Sessions refused, quote, no, I can't do that. I can't talk about it, end quote. The Pagliano issue was, wasn't even about Hillary Clinton. It was about, well, that wasn't true, but anyway. It was about whether congressional subpoenas hold any force at DOJ. This was a black and white case. But here was a Republican attorney general telling me, no, we're not going to do anything with that. And he goes on to kind of, you know, talk about this at some length. And again, this is Chaffetz. By the end of the hour, it became clear this Justice Department was going to be little to no help, same as the Obama administration. The same deep state that I was working with during the Lynch-Holder years, Loretta Lynch, Eric Holder, Obama's Attorney General, years were still there. Nothing had changed with the new administration. I couldn't see that, that Sessions was doing anything to drain the swamp within DOJ. Would the three of you agree with the chairman's assessment that Jeff Sessions is a part of the deep state? No, um, I'll take that one. <laughs> um, so uh, I would suggest that uh, uh, former Congressman Chaffetz is, is actually pretty cynically capitalizing on something and producing things like this. And not only do I not believe that that's true, I don't believe that Jason Chaffetz believes that it's true either. And I think that whenever you have a congressman, for example, talking about the difference between congressional subpoenas and the legislative branch has its own uh, mechanisms to enforce their legislative prerogatives, if they want to enforce a legislative subpoena, putting that onto, for example, the attorney general, as if it is the attorney general that is essentially thwarting their ability to get information. I, I think what that does is, one, it, it's, it's demonstrably wrong about how the process works, but two, it actually really confuses the American public about what's going on, about who is responsible, who is accountable, uh, how processes should be working. Um, and so, so I, I guess I... Um, it's not entirely clear to me what anecdotes like that are, in, are meant to accomplish other than a general delegitimizing function because one, I, I think that they're pretty, on, they're on their face sort of factually inaccurate. And two, uh, this sort of, the narrative of a group of people that are all working against essentially Republican interests, it, it also doesn't make a ton of sense because you have bipartisan groups of individuals who work within DOJ, who've worked with lots of different forms of administrations. And so I, I do have a pretty strong reaction to, to seeing stuff like this. I think that there is um, a reasonable and important conversation to have about uh, you know, national security reform, transparency reform, process transparency, all kinds of stuff. But, but this, to me, exists pretty well outside the bounds of, of where productive discussion might take place. Well, and Attorney General Sessions spent his career representing Republican Party interests. I mean. And I think, you know, another sort of just useful frame of reference to keep in mind is that to the extent that allegations about the deep state come from partisan elected officials, um, they often are operating from a different mindset than the very career bureaucrats that they're talking about. So in a partisan electoral world, um, 
everything is sort of motivated by winning the next contest. Everything is a zero-sum game. Everything is, can I get elected to get my agenda put forward? Now, that's just sort of structurally, and that's not you know, <coughs> casting aspersions on any particular you know, elected official, but, but that's sort of the, the way that our electoral process works, right? It's all about winning and losing and zero-sum games. And, and you have to remember that in the, in the, when you're talking about the mass of people, the individual government employees, right, who make up the alleged deep, deep state, um, to the extent they're in the federal government, these are people who are covered by the Hatch Act and are barred from most kinds of partisan activities, certainly as it relates to their work. And if you're talking about the national security community, you're talking about people who are barred by Hatch Act Plus restrictions, if you will. So really, um, the idea that there is a deeply partisan motivation, again, below the level of political appointees, um, and sort of the run-of-the-mill people who would fall into the allegation of deep state bucket. It's just, it's, it's a fundamentally different mindset. And I think that often um, people who are involved in, in electoral polit politics just, just lose track or sight of the fact that there is a whole set of um, dedicated government employees who really are not working from that zero-sum win-lose mindset. That's not their frame of reference. That's not what they're showing up to work every day for. <laughs> I, I, well, I, I would not agree, actually. I think that there are, in fact, most career civil servants, including in the national security bureaucracy, are dedicated, honest, nonpartisan people. <coughs> but I think making a kind of wholesale distinction between them and elected politicians or those who work for them doesn't make any sense. I don't think that all elected politicians or political leaders see it as a zero-sum game. I think that there is a particular group at the moment led by the President of the United States who has, um, in a really remarkable way, uh, kind of tried to transform our politics so that it is not tied to facts it's not tied to uh, um, basic shared assumptions about the rule of law. It's not tied to what has been some basic shared assumptions about um, American <coughs> interests. And um, it's fundamentally, it is all of the things you just ascribed to electoral officials, but I don't think that it's fair to paint everyone with that brush, nor do I think it advances the conversation. Let me, let me get Michael I don't in. think the conversation is really about elected officials versus career people. Mike, Michael's very Let me let people respond if she wants. Okay. Yeah, and, and, so, and let me be clear about what I'm trying to say. I'm just, I'm suggesting <coughs> that there is a different, there is, a, there is, I think, a different shaping of culture when you have to compete to get somewhere versus when you are sort of trying to embrace a shared mission of whatever agency you're working in. And again, I, I, I'm try, I tried to be clear, and so I'll, I'll say again, that's not to cast aspersions on any particular elected official because I think by and large, the vast majority are not only motivated by a sense of public service, but continue to carry through that sense of public service in whatever role they serve in. Um, what I'm suggesting is that um, I think that 
there are a different set of frames of reference that get sort of institutionally inculcated um, depending on, you know, what you see depends on where you sit, I think is what I'm trying to say. <clears throat> I, I think we need to look at that more carefully. I mean, I just, I know Michael has a point, but, but just at this point, the mere fact that we're having this conversation, the Attorney General doesn't have a role in enforcing congressional subpoenas. Yes. <laughs> and so the question for Chairman Chavitz is, why was he going to the Attorney General if he was interested in, in enforcing a congressional subpoena in the first place? And so we're all talking about this as though there's some group of people that's acting against him instead of saying, that's not how this process works. And so I think this is a really good example of how sort of presenting facts and, and just twisting them a little bit, taking them out of context, can really have people sort of spun up around trying to, to explain and, and deconstruct things, when in in reality, it, it, the two just have nothing to do with one another. Michael? Well, uh, th three comments. Uh, first, w w actually maybe four comments. I, I, the Attorney General does ultimately have a role in enforcing a congressional subpoena unless the House of Representatives or the Senate wish to instruct the Sergeant at Arms to go out and arrest someone for contempt of Congress. You've got to refer the contempt citation to the Justice Department. Which and had the, not been done. Well, but looking ahead, maybe that's what he was referring to. It hadn't reached that stage yet, but ultimately, if you're going to issue a subpoena, you want to think about what's going to happen next. And maybe, I, you know, obviously I wasn't there, but maybe that's what the subject of the conversation was. Second, it, it se so it seems to me that, you know, Regardless of the identity of the actors, the Justice Department ought to be willing to prosecute uh, contempt of Congress if, if that was, in fact, the subject of the conversation. Um, second, uh, political appointees do get captured. Um, they do tend to go native. There is something called path dependence in these big bureaucracies. It happens to Democrats. It happens to Republicans. There are incentives deeply embedded in our political system that cause political appointees to wish to be protective of the bureaucracy that they had. And that happens all the time. So it wouldn't surprise me if um, any attorney general became protective of the Justice Department. Third, the important thing is, it seems to me, a number of uh, people have talked about the process. The important thing, if you believe in the rule of law, is to accept the outcome of a pre-agreed process, regardless of the identity of the political decision makers. That's fundamental to the notion of the rule of law. You don't start from the outcome and reverse engineer things to get the outcome that you want. That's a Soviet that, approach. That's a things. Soviet approach, yeah. and it's a political approach, ultimately. It's a power approach. It's not a law approach. Now, how does all that relate to the charge that Trump is the victim of a deep state? Is there any legitimacy to his charge? Of course, some things that he is complaining about are legitimate complaints if you are a Democrat with a small d. Look, for example, at um, the Bob Woodward's uh, recollection in, in his book of Gary Cohn, one of Trump's 
financial advisors, removing from Trump's desk a letter that would have terminated the trade agreement with South Korea. Now, there was nothing, nothing to suggest that what Trump was doing was illegal. To the contrary, this was a policy that Trump had promised he would pursue and on which he was elected. He is an elected official of the American people. And nobody elected Gary Cohn. Nobody elected Gary Cohn. This is an example of what some people have referred to as bureaucratic checking, which is totally alien to our constitutional system. And in fact, you, but, you, but, you but, spent... But, but, well, let me, let, me, let me just jump in real quick because I think... In fact, this is a theme of, of an article that you wrote for Harper's back in June of, of 2017, Trump versus the deep state. And you raise, you raise some extremely interesting points in this piece. And, and I'll just quote this, this one particular section. To formally charge the bureaucracy with providing a check on the president, Congress or the courts would represent an entirely new form of government, a system in which institutionalized bureaucratic autocracy replaces democratic accountability. What standing would Trump's critics have to object to bureaucratic supremacy should an enlightened president come along in some brighter time and seek to free them from the, quote, polar night of icy darkness, end quote, that Max Weber warned is bureaucracy's inevitable endpoint? Where, then, would they turn, having consecrated the security directorate as their final guardian? I found that incredibly uh, insightful and, and compelling. Kate, you had something? Well, but I just wanted to ask you, Michael, I mean... The thing about that story, which I agree with you about it, is that Gary Cohn was a political appointee by the president working in the White House for the president. He in no way represents the career people at the FBI or the CIA. And Trump's main attacks have been not on the fact that he's in, apparently incapable of having a White House where they all work to the same end, right? But that instead they're all fighting with each other over what he's going to do, which is a different problem, right, than whether or not the FBI has in fact undertaken some kind of illegal or unconstitutional you don't think, well, no. okay. Let me, but, let me respond. So maybe it's uh, not here's, a here's, 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 here, Take the FBI. Yeah. Okay. Um, Jim Comey charges Hillary Clinton publicly with gross negligence in the handling of her email. Now, is there anything illegal with that? Answer, no. No. The FBI is a law enforcement organization, not a policy enforcement organization. Nobody appointed the FBI, the national school marm, to lecture people who are grossly negligent. The FBI's job is to identify violations of the law, not to lecture people on good citizenship. So, but how is that an example of the deep state as we're discussing here? Again, the, the example just it, it fails for me. Well, I, can I it, just it's, add? it's an example of what I've just referred to, and I, I, I told you I, I don't like the term deep state, so I, I can't describe to you 
um, what the deep state can properly do or not properly to do. It's an example of bureaucratic checking, which is wholly improper. The Constitution gives power to the Congress and the President and the courts, and that power flows downward to the bureaucracy, not upward from the bureaucracy to the elected officials of the American people. That's the point. I actually totally agree with Michael about that example, about both of his examples now. Um, and I, think, I wrote at the time that Comey's press conference, before he even got to the letter in which he excoriated Hillary Clinton for having done something that he didn't approve of, was very close to the kind of political interference by the FBI that we saw in earlier ages. And you, call, you analyze it in a more academic, in a deeper and different way, but totally inappropriate. I think the key, though, is that if you look at what the FBI has done, which I think has been wrong in several respects, Comey's actions, the leaks to the paper, which were leaks that were helpful to Trump during the election campaign rather than harmful, that they belie this president's specific attack, which is that they're out to get him. And in fact, to the extent that something was done which shouldn't have been done, it was done by Comey and people at the FBI in a way that harmed um, that actually helped uh, candidate Trump's election. Let me get. I mean, like, I would just note again: the FBI director is a political appointee who can and was removed by the president. I think leaks may be a better example, um, but but I do think it's important, whatever term we want to use. And, and I agree, nobody should sort of be imputed with the deep state. But but the difference between bureaucracy and political appointees, because the accountability mechanisms are so different, I just think it's really important to to separate and, and keep those two notions very very clear. Well, let me uh, let me just read quickly here from, from Mike Lofgren's book. And for background, Mike spent almost 30 years on Capitol Hill as a senior uh, House and later Senate Budget Committee staffer on the Republican side. So he's extremely versed uh, both in the political aspect of things, uh, but also in the, in the mechanics, the nuts and bolts of government itself. And, and this is what Mike has to say about this kind of general concept that we're debating. Yes, there is another, governmental, uh, another government concealed beneath the one that is visible at either end of Pennsylvania Avenue, a hybrid entity of public and private institutions ruling the country according to consistent patterns in season and out, tethered to but only intermittently controlled by the visible state whose leaders we nominally choose. Those who seek a grand conspiracy theory to explain the phenomenon will be disappointed. My analysis of the deep state is not an expose of a secret conspiratorial cabal. Logic, facts, and experience do not sustain belief in overarching conspiracies and expertly organized cover-ups that keep these conspiracies successfully hidden for decades. I think that kind of gets to your larger model, Michael, which is you have this dual structure, essentially. And so the question then becomes, do we have examples where the, the non-Madisonian component, to use your your framing, uh, elements of that non-Madisonian component have actually engaged in activities that are designed to thwart or even bring down a particular president. And I don't know if any of you can necessarily think of some actual documented <clears throat> ones, 
but I do have one. And uh, we're going we're gonna to go back in time a little bit here, almost 100 years, as a matter of fact. The year is 1924. And, of course, the presidential campaign by this point was really heated up, well underway. Incumbent Calvin Coolidge uh, didn't just face a Democratic opponent. He faced a very, very familiar uh, opponent from his own party, a senator by the name of Robert LaFollette Sr., who also had as his running mate somebody else who I mentioned earlier who had previously been the subject of (laughs) FBI surveillance, Senator Burton Wheeler of Montana. And on September the 17th, 1924, J. Edgar Hoover, in his first first year running the Bureau of, what was then still known as the Bureau of Investigation, it wouldn't get the federal moniker until FDR's administration in 1935. Hoover wrote to Arthur Bliss Lane, who's one of the more famous State Department functionaries of, of the last century, and Lane was a close confidant of, of the then Secretary of State, And he wrote to Lane, quote, from an extremely confidential and delicate source, I have been advised that the Commissariat for Foreign Affairs of the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics has decided that all Soviet institutions should indirectly aid Senator LaFollette in his election campaign. As it is believed that if Senator LaFollette is victorious in his campaign, then the recognition of the Soviet government will follow immediately. And on the basis of this supposition, all the trade institutions of the Soviet government are instructed to utilize all their force and influence to aid the La Follette campaign. However, at the same time, it is directed that no official statement should be made and no personal opinions expressed in connection with the elections in general in order that the enemies of the Soviet government may have no opportunity to say that the latter is interfering in the internal affairs of a foreign nation and conducting propaganda therein. As stated above, this information was received from an exceedingly delicate source. The very, um, uh, the very next day, we have a circumstance whereby there is a meeting uh, at the White House. My correction, one week later, there's a meeting at the White House uh, that involves uh, the Secretary of State. And he is involved in the president's reelection campaign, as are several folks. And this is a memo that went to Mr. Grew uh, over, at the, uh, over at the State Department. Evan Young, who is also a State Department official, told me this morning that the National Defense Committee, and this was an outside group in 1924, think of it as like a 527 uh, or similar group in, in <coughs> modern context, had committed, uh, communicated with the White House to the effect that they had $500,000 available to spend in running a campaign to defeat Mr. LaFollette, that they were anxious to unearth any material which would show that La Follette was supported by the Soviet government or its agents, and that they would be grateful if the administration would facilitate their obtaining any facts along these lines. I told Mr. Young that the only information we had was the Department of Justice's letter, 17 September, which he had already seen. So this Hoover report had already been circulated essentially pretty widely throughout the government and also apparently was uh, of, of knowledge, at least, to folks at this National Defense Committee. To make sure that there was no further information of this character at the Department of Justice, I called Mr. Bauman, who drafted the letter of September 17th, and learned that he had obtained the data on which the letter was based from the New York office of the Department of Justice. I told him that this information had been of great interest to the department, but that we were at a loss to understand in it in view of the fact that the Daily Worker, the recognized organ of the Soviet government in this country, had attacked Mr. LaFollette and so on and so forth. Long story short, 
Hoover continued to supply this kind of derogatory information to the White House during the campaign, there's some pretty good evidence that that information made its way to the press and elsewhere. What I can tell you, having examined the records of the La Follette family, which are at the uh, Library of Congress, is that J. Edgar Hoover made no effort to inform La Follette that he was basically being used by the Soviets or that the Soviets were attempting to use him. So that really struck me. That particular episode very much struck me as a, as a very salient example of the kind of thing, the kind of threat that I think Trump is referring to. Now the question is, how frequent does this happen? How frequently does it happen? And I, at this point, I think that's very difficult to say. It's probably relatively rare, but I don't think there's ever really been a comprehensive examination of exactly how many of these kinds of episodes may have taken place. So I don't know if, if folks have I think this example actually, <clears throat> it's a pretty good illustration of, uh, one of one of the challenges of having this discussion, which is that the entirety of the post-Hoover, post-Watergate reforms reflecting instances of abuses, including instances far more egregious than that, was about implementing layers of bureaucracy and rules in order to depoliticize as a civil liberties protection. This entire bureaucracy, this structure, was built out of a desire to distance the head, you know, constitutionally the head of the executive branch from uh, using the tools of the state in what we all rec recognize to be plainly abusive purposes. And so the challenge now in having the discussion of these levels of bureaucracy, as if that itself is a form of abuse, it's there's a little bit of a of a circular. Uh, uh, problem here because those were intended to be responsive. And so this, um, this balance we've been attempting to achieve between political accountability and non-political law enforcement, non-political or apolitical intelligence, no, we haven't always gotten the balance quite right. But this bureaucracy is, one, a structure in order to achieve that and in order to sort of to constantly recalibrate. But we have plenty of examples of of the bureaucracy engaging in, in some cases, systemic abuses, even to this day. I mean, the FBI itself has been involved and continues to be involved in essentially political investigations. Um, when you look at what happened uh, after the outbreak of the Iraq War in 2003, the Thomas Merton Center, uh, a pacifist organization uh, in Pennsylvania, was directly targeted by the FBI for their activities. That was the, the subsequent uh, subject of a Department of Justice investigative report, but it kind of goes back to something that Kate said earlier, is that most of the time these mechanisms that we're talking about don't actually prevent abuse, don't always prevent it. They, they can bring things to light, but it's usually after something really terrible has gone, has gone on. I, I look at what happened to Brandon Mayfield. For those of you who, who may not recognize that name, uh, you may recall that in 2004, March of 2004, there was a terrible uh, Al-Qaeda-related uh, attack on the Spanish transit system. And in the course of that investigation, the FBI bungled fingerprint analysis and implicated a Portland, Oregon lawyer who also happened to be a former Army veteran and also a Muslim American convert as actually having been involved you know, in that episode. And it turns out that the Spanish government did everything they could to try to prevent the FBI from going public with that because the Spanish felt that the fingerprint analysis was wrong and the Spanish government was right. 
But Mayfield's name got out there. He was actually <coughs> indicted. They went up with FISA wiretaps, did searches of his office, seized everything. And, and for a two-week period, his name was global. And, and his life was literally turned upside down. So those are examples, essentially. And I, I have a stack here, but I'm... Just that a mistake is, is not an example of what we're talking about. I don't think anyone represents this as an error-proof system. But, but I, I don't see the, the abuse to the extent that it, it's tied to this conversation. I, maybe I'm missing it. Well, when we talk about a, a systemic problem, then I think we can possibly go back to FISA itself. Um, and, and again, this is something else that I personally find interesting because <laughs> with Mr. Chavis's book, I like to go through indexes to see what people do or don't mention. And there's no mention of FISA or the FISA Amendments Act in here, no mention of surveillance, no mention of Mr. Putin, no mention of actual Russian election interference, which I thought was really kind of interesting since that's really kind of a core <clears throat> part of this. But we know from, from FISA declarations that were ultimately made public that for years, NSA was actually engaged in uh, going after what's known as multiple communications transactions, and it resulted in the collection of non-targeted, entirely domestic communications. I'm not going to you know, go page by page on this whole thing. This is something that, that our friends at Demand Progress put out uh, a few years ago, and this is all based essentially on, on actual uh, FISA court documents that have subsequently been made public. So there are, there are systemic examples of this still going on, and because of the layers of secrecy that we have, it's extremely difficult to actually get a real handle on exactly how widespread this stuff is, which, again, I think is a point that Kate has made. Well, yeah, Patrick, I mean, I agree with you, and as you know, I spent those years um, calling out the abuse of Brandon Mayfield's rights. I do believe it was an abuse. Um, condemning the surveillance of the Thomas Merton Peace Center. But I do think it's extremely important for those of us on this side to be specific about what it is that we object to, what the abuse is, and what the possibilities are. And I, I, I guess I agree with Susan, it, which is that I don't see the nece any necessary connection between what the FBI was doing then, and it might still be surveilling Muslim American communities in ways that you and I would think were abusive. And the question of whether or not there's any evidence or reason to believe that the FBI or any other intelligence agency <clears throat> improperly wiretapped President Trump or his campaign and I don't think there is. And the fact that they did these things in the, quote, war on terror doesn't lead. And I think that it's very dangerous to say that that then means that the FBI is likely to have, at the behest of the Obama administration, somehow been involved in this attack on uh, the Trump campaign. And I think the, one of the things we know is we know an enormous number of facts about what the FBI did and didn't do about the campaign. We have the FISA affidavits for Carter Page, the actual affidavits. Well, but, and, but to be clear, and, those affidavits remain very, very heavily redacted. But it, it, so whatever they say in them, there's no way they didn't 
wiretap Carter Page without a FISA. We know they got a FISA. They got the court to approve it four times. I mean, who knows whether or not they told the court everything they should have told the court. But so what, is my question to you. Because what the president is charging is not that some individual FBI agent didn't fully inform the FISA court. He's charging a conspiracy by the Obama FBI to interfere with his campaign. There is simply no evidence of that. Well, and, I, we, and you have to come up with the evidence. And there's a ton of evidence out there, you know, on lawfare, on just security, but all over the committees themselves have made public a ton of evidence about what happened and what didn't happen. And then the other thing is, I think, is if you apply kind of a common sense, logical, well, why would they do this, right? So one of the questions you ask yourself is, well, why would Comey attack the um, Democratic presidential candidate in a way that has, is now agreed was a violation of department rules? And it turns out, you know, probably because of his own personal arrogance and misperception about FBI interests. Was it um, at Trump's instigation? No, it wasn't. There's no evidence of that. And similarly, there's no logical reason to say that somehow the FBI or the CIA or the NSA acted not because they were worried about what they were seeing with regard to Russian activities, but they were acting instead to get then-candidate, now-President Trump. And, and I actually, as a civil libertarian who's always worked on this and who has worked also on what I see as um, institutional threats posed by the national security bureaucracy that Michael's talked about and that others have talked about, that we have to be very careful to look at the actual facts and that the threats to the institutions that I see at the moment come from political leaders lying and not from the facts about what we know that those national security institutions have actually done. Michael? It seems to me that you can argue the uh, validity of <coughs> Carter Page application either way. Uh, it's, it's, it's questionable whether the uh, dossier should have been uh, referenced and in effect transmitted to the FISA court. It's uh, questionable why the Justice Department didn't more specifically uh, identify the origins of the dossier. It's questionable why the FISA court, the, the four judges that Kate referred to, didn't at some point press the Justice Department for more information on where it got this information. But I, I think we ought not lose sight of the very fundamental question that Pat put to us at the outset, which is far broader and more fundamental than FISA. The question is, how does Joe Sixpack know whether an FBI investigation is legitimate or 
conducted for reasons of political or personal animus. How does the person on the street make that judgment? Now, now, let me just say, a little homework assignment. Over the weekend, sit down with Google at your computer and try to figure out an answer to this question. When can the FBI investigate me? And what you'll find is there is a melange of a little statute here, a little statute there, lots of executive orders, guidelines from the attorney general, but there's no charter for the FBI. There's no statute that says in simple, straightforward, comprehensible terms what the authority of the FBI is. What can it do? How can it do it? When can it do it? What can it not do? The church committee, in its report, recommended that those sorts of questions be answered by statute. Instead, they are answered today mostly by attorney general's guidelines and an executive order, uh, multiple executive orders, but in part, one, two, three, three, three. Now, anybody who thinks that that constitutes regulation needs to think again, because the Justice Department, OLC, has said correctly, I think, that as a matter of law, those executive orders and attorney general's guidelines are not legally binding. If the executive branch wants to violate any of those executive orders or AG's guidelines, it doesn't even need to repeal them first. Senator Whitehouse revealed this in a reading an OLC opinion uh, 11 years ago. But clearly that's true as a matter of law. There's nothing that prohibits a president from, in effect, ignoring an executive order and acting contrary to it, let alone an attorney general's opinion. So the the answer to the question is, as as Pat said, you, you can't know, you cannot come to an informed, reliable judgment as to whether the FBI investigation is legitimate or motivated by personal or political animus. Just to put a small, a small point of clarification, executive orders and the attorney general's guidelines are treated as binding law by the entire executive branch. Yes, the president, uh, there's OLC guidance that the president at the presidential level could change the interpretation of those guidelines, but I just want to make sure that there's no belief that an individual person working in some agency could decide to violate those, and, and that would be up to their discretion. And that's exactly why, because those OLC opinions are treated as law by the executive branch, that's why nobody could be prosecuted for torture. It, it served as a shield, which, and I will say that, that my big problem is with OLC, quite frankly, but that's for another time. I want to give so, April the last word, and then I do want to save just a few minutes for questions. Yeah, so I just, you know, I, I can't help but note in this conversation we're having the definitional problem, right? As, as we're ta- touching on so many different kinds of examples and talking about so many different kinds of issues, it, to me it really just sort of illuminates the fact that whether we call it the deep state, whether we call it something else, this sense of unease about um, whether or not there's sufficient transparency into government activities and sufficient accountability is not in any way being illuminated by a lot of the the heated rhetoric around, you know, deep state and that kind of thing. And, and, and so 
the kinds of examples we're talking about is FISA properly constrained, bounded, and overseen, to me is a very different question than should Jim Comey have made his comments pre-election and and questions about um, whether or not Brandon Mayfield was an error or something systemic. I mean, and these distinctions between political appointees and elected officials and, and people who are operating at sort of an everyday working level. I mean, again, I think what this illuminates for me is that um, in order to have really move this conversation forward, we probably need more clarity and more specificity on what kinds of issues we're trying to raise and what kinds of perceived or real problems we're trying to address because these are falling into so many different bins. So we're going to go uh, briefly here to some questions. Uh, if I could have our, our friendly staff begin to kind of circulate with the microphones and the like. And again, I'll just emphasize <coughs> questions, not filibusters. Um, be brief. Be to the point, um, and then uh, hopefully we'll have time for at least a few here. All right. Uh, very back of the room up there, gentlemen, with what appears to be a yellow tie on. If I'm colorblind, sorry. It's the lighting. I don't. Please state your name and your affiliation. Um, good morning, Augustus Salzona. Um, immigrant from the Philippines, been around this town since 50, 1955. My question is this, is would, uh, how would this, well, the discussions that you all just had, and I guess those which conversations, discussion, whatever you wish to call them for the rest of today's conference, how would the subjects and or tenure, what is it, tone, whatever, of the discussions being held today be any different had Hillary Clinton been elected president of the United States? I'm not going to touch that. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure we would have had a, a totally different set of debates. I, I don't think it would be sunshine and rainbows right now. I, I think that there would be right the <clears throat> the opposite examination about um, whether enough had been done to reveal information about her campaign and, and sort of hold her accountable so um, <clears throat> I would be very very surprised if um, had she become president secretary Clinton had chosen to respond to um, challenges from law enforcement or challenges from uh, from Congress or the intelligence community by attempting to suggest those were illegitimate organizations um, that were just out to get her. Um, I, I do think that there is some part of this that is um, uh, sort of a distinct feature of, of Trump. Um, I, don't, I don't know how much that answers the question, but I, in terms of the counterfactual, I, I would imagine we'd be having a, a very serious, but um, probably a more fact-based discussion, at least I would hope. I'll just offer the observation that if Secretary Clinton had one, we'd still be talking about her emails. I. I I tend to think also that Mr. Chaffetz might have stayed in Congress so he could talk about her emails some more too, um, more than likely. But I, I have to agree with Susan on this. I think that the, you know, Donald Trump is not an establishment figure. That's probably a, a very polite way of putting it. He's not an establishment figure. That's why his base loves him. And I think that's, that is the qualitative difference here, is that he just doesn't care about 
you know, the established norms of conduct and the like that have existed here in Washington. And I don't always agree with the established norms of conduct here myself, but to me, you don't have to be a bomb thrower and be utterly disagreeable to disagree in a meaningful and a substantive way. And I think having spent, you know, time with the agency and as, as Julian indicated, you know, I'm, I'm a CIA whistleblower. Uh, there is no love lost between myself and my former employer. But unlike most CIA critics, I'm happy to admit when I think they're right. And on the question of whether or not the Russians interfered in our election, I have complete confidence that they're right. Can we get another? Yes, ma'am. I'm Victoria Feinberg. I retired from the Department of Defense. And uh, you have brought up a comment about Michael Cohen who removed the document from Donald Trump's desk. So if we can define a shallow state of the president's appointees who are so-called adults in the room, uh, do they have a function to act quickly when everybody else does not have time to act? And also, is there any connection between the deep state as described and the shallow state of the people who are trying to to control the president. I mean, I, what I'll say, you know, having worked for a member of Congress for over a decade, um, the interesting thing about staff is that they do have the ability, essentially, depending upon the, the member's personality and characteristics, and this applies to presidents too, they have the ability to help shape the agenda. Uh, and essentially shape what actually gets in front of the president. The bureaucracies have the ability to do this too. You know, every time that somebody is making a decision, a manager at CIA is making a decision about what goes into the presidential daily brief, which I hear he doesn't really read that much anymore, um, they're making a judgment call ultimately about what they think is important to the president or what the president ought to know. Now, does that like qualify as deep state activity? I don't think so. I think it's a qualitative judgment uh, about what's actually important and whether or not something is actually a threat. But there's no question that staff absolutely help to shape policy and, and shape the decisions and the choices that elected and appointed officials ultimately make. And that's one of the reasons why I think uh, you do have to be concerned about personnel. You do have to be worried about who ultimately gets you know, approved to a particular position. Uh, and I think we've got time, barely, for one more. Gentleman on the wing over here, glasses, looks like a navy jacket and a blue shirt. Name and affiliation, please. Yes. <clears throat> yes, thank you. My name is uh, Steve Dewey. I'm a uh, federal government retiree. Uh, the question I have, uh, you talked a little bit about um, how the uh, bureaucrats in the federal government are civil servants and they don't really affect public policy. From my experience, uh, that is not true at all. Um, I have seen uh, people in senior management positions who really do affect public policy. And uh, so, my, so the question I have, uh, there's public um, information out there as far as political donations are concerned. You can find it on Federal Election <coughs> Commission website, fpc.gov. You can find it on opensecrets.org. And if you look at that public information about political donations, it reveals that over 
of U.S. Justice Department employees donated to Hillary Clinton, same with the U.S. State Department, and same with uh, many other federal agencies. And, so, and your question is? My question is, wouldn't you acknowledge that having such overwhelming uh, donations from federal employees for a certain political candidate influence their um, execution of public policy? Answer, of course. <laughs> so I, I would say two things. One, I, I don't think April or anyone else suggested federal employees don't affect public policy. Certainly they deeply affect public policy. I think it's a question about whether or not they're able to disentangle their own personal political bias from the work. That's one thing that we want to be careful about whenever we talk, for example, about FBI agents or individuals who might have made political donations. Federal employees are, are people who have political views and uh, uh, we, should pretend, we shouldn't pretend that they don't have them. What they are, what we should acknowledge is that they are able to do the work separately and, and sort of put those views to the side and do their jobs with integrity as, as the law requires them. And so I, I just, I would frame it as, as a slightly different uh, sort of presentation, at least well, as I understood. And, and I think we should be clear that the data that you're talking about on the FEC website represents those employees of the Department of Justice or any other federal agency or department who elected to make campaign contributions. That is not necessarily an accurate reflection of the overall political um, worldview, essentially, of Department of Justice employees as a whole. So I, I think when we, talk, when we start talking about samples here, we have to be very, very careful. With that, we are going to conclude this panel. We're going to take about a 15-minute break. Give my friends here uh, a shout-out.